Hello there and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. In previous episodes we've heard about the Battle of Mansikert and how Byzantium lost its most important territory, Anatolia, to the Turks during the disastrous reign of the Dukai. But as Byzantium sank beneath a rising tide of enemies, a new emperor called Alexius Komnenus seized the throne in 1081. And Alexius must count as one of the most remarkable emperors in the entire history of Byzantium, and we'll now find out about what he did to try to save Byzantium. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019. And you might be interested to hear it's just now available in audiobook at Amazon. So do check it out. Now let's go. Hope you enjoy it. Alexius Komnenus was one of the most fascinating of all Byzantine emperors. His daughter described her father thus, quote, His dark eyebrows were curved, and beneath them the gaze of his eyes was both terrible and kind. When he came into a gathering and began to speak, you were conscious from the moment he opened his mouth of the fiery eloquence of his tongue, end quote. Although, it is true, Alexius was a man of remarkable energy, determination and resourcefulness, even he could not hold back the rising tide of enemies bursting into the empire from all sides in the 1080s. When he seized the throne in 1081, the empire was on its last legs. Not only were the Turks overrunning Anatolia, but he was immediately confronted by a major Norman invasion of the Balkans. Robert Guiscard, the Norman conqueror of Byzantine southern Italy, crossed the Adriatic with a powerful army and laid siege to the Byzantine stronghold of Dyrrhachium, which is Durazzo in modern Albania. Constantinople was his target, claiming that he wanted to restore the dethroned Emperor Michael VII, who had retired to a monastery, he paraded a monk dressed as Michael VII. Alexius had no choice but to meet him in battle. Therefore, in September 1081, Alexius marched west with what was left of the Byzantine army. This force bore no resemblance to the army that Romanus Diogenes had taken to Mansikert. The Byzantine units were a low-grade feudal force and their military effectiveness was poor. Alexius was dependent on mercenaries, mainly the Varangian Guard, but also Turks and Pechenegs. The battle became something of a reenactment of the Battle of Hastings in 1066 between the Normans and the Saxons. This was because the core of Alexius's army was the force of Varangians, who were mainly Saxon at this time, consisting of thousands of warriors who had fled Norman England after the Battle of Hastings. 
The main contest was a bloody slogging match between Robert Guiscard's Norman Knights and infantry with the Varangian Guard. The Normans won the day and the Byzantine army was routed with the complete slaughter of the Varangians. After this devastating defeat at the Battle of Dyrrhachion, many emperors would either have given up or been overthrown by their own people. But Alexius's hallmarks were his tenacity and political cunning. First, he created a clever diversion against the Normans by persuading the German emperor Henry IV to invade Norman Italy. This caused Robert Guiscard to return to Italy, passing command of the invasion force to his son Bohemond. Then, Alexius adopted Turkish tactics against the Normans. He avoided battle, instead wearing them down through skirmishing and ambushes. By doing this, he managed to slow down Bohemond's advance through modern-day Albania. When the Normans reached Macedonia and northern Greece, he strengthened the garrisons in the key towns and cities like Ohrid and Larissa, which held out in long sieges. The mountainous Macedonian countryside dotted with Byzantine hilltop forts, also made progress for the Normans difficult. The Norman offensive petered out in 1083. There is also no doubt that one of Alexius's greatest gifts was luck. In 1085, there was a fantastic example of this when the Norman leader, Robert Guiscard, died unexpectedly from fever just as he was preparing a renewed offensive. Back in southern Italy, there was civil war over his succession. The Norman forces withdrew from Albania. Dyrrhachian surrendered to the Byzantines. The Norman threat was over, at least for the time being. However, Alexius's problems were far from over. The Pechenegs had become as big a problem in the Balkans in the mid-1080s as they had been in the 1040s. Those that had settled south of the Danube within Byzantine territory revolted, and they were joined by new tribes coming from the north. In 1087, Alexius was defeated in a pitched battle, and by 1090, the Pechenegs had advanced to the walls of Constantinople itself. The Pecheneg threat was compounded by the collapse of Alexius's strategy in the east. It is certainly true that in the 1080s, while Alexius fought in the west, all was quiet on the eastern front. Not only was there relative stability with the Turkmen in western Anatolia, but Suleiman, the Seljuk emir in control of Anatolia, also supplied Alexius with large numbers of Turkmen mercenaries. Indeed, Alexius relied on these in his war against the Normans, especially using a force of 7,000 Turkmen to relieve the Norman siege of Larissa in 1083. However, Alexius had to pay a high price for Turkish support. He allowed Suleiman to occupy both Nicaea and Antioch, the two most important cities in the empire after Constantinople. This worked well in the short term, but in the longer term, it was disastrous. Although Suleiman remained true to his alliance with Byzantium, when he died in 1085, the treaty broke down. His successor, Abul Qasim, 
started to raid Byzantine territory. In 1090, he captured Nicomedia, the capital of Bithynia, only 50 miles from Constantinople itself. The end of the alliance with the Turks in Nicaea was made doubly difficult for the Byzantines by an extraordinary new Turkish threat. This came from a Turkish emir called Chaka, who took the Byzantine city of Smyrna on the western coast of Asia Minor in the late 1080s and proceeded to do something that the Turks had never done before, to construct a fleet. As if having the Turkish hordes baying at Constantinople from just across the Bosphorus wasn't bad enough, there was now this threat of a Turkish naval attack on the capital as well. Indeed, Chaka negotiated with the Pechenegs in 1090 for a combined attack on the imperial city. It looked as if the empire had no hope of survival. During the winter of 1090-91, Constantinople was besieged by the Pechenegs on the land while Chaka threatened the city with an attack from the sea. Byzantium was on the brink of annihilation. But it was saved when a new set of Asiatic steppe nomads called the Cumans appeared from north of the Danube. At first, it seemed that they might join with the Pechenegs against the Byzantines, but Alexius managed to make contact with them and with lavish gifts, payments of gold and apparently an extraordinarily extravagant banquet, he persuaded them to join forces with him against the Pechenegs. At the foot of Mount Livunion in Thrace, 40 miles south of Constantinople, the Pechenegs were decisively defeated by a combined Byzantine and Cuman force on the 29th of April 1091. The slaughter of the Pechenegs was so devastating that it made a deep impression on the Byzantines. Quote, an entire people numbering myriads, was exterminated on a single day, end quote. Alexius's daughter Anna Komnena wrote. In the streets of Constantinople, unable to believe their good luck, the people chanted, quote, all because of one day, the Pechenegs never saw the month of May, end quote. However, Chaka's maritime threat continued after the Pechenegs were defeated. He continued to raid the Aegean Islands in the 1090s, completely disrupting maritime trade. Records from monasteries in the Aegean Islands describe the flight of the monks in the face of the Turkish raiders, who were systematically occupying one island after another. On the other side of the Bosphorus from Constantinople, the position was also desperate. Although Alexius recovered Nicomedia from Abul Qasim in 1091, and that was with the help of 500 knights from Robert of Flanders, it was the last Byzantine bastion against the Turks in Asia Minor. In 1094, it looked as if it might not hold out much longer when an ambitious young emir, Kilij Arslan, seized control of Nicaea from Abul Qasim. He also married a daughter of Chakas, meaning that Byzantium now faced a concerted Turkish attack from both land and sea. The extent of Byzantine collapse in the east is illustrated by the accounts of the Crusaders. When they arrived in Nicomedia in 1097, in the First Crusade, they found Byzantine soldiers clinging onto their last toehold in Anatolia, surrounded by a blood-spattered battlefield. As they recorded, quote, 
Oh, how many severed heads and bones of the dead lying on the plains did we then find beyond Nicomedia near that sea, the sea being the Bosphorus beside Constantinople, end quote. Although Alexius had managed to stem the Norman and Pecheneg onslaught in the west, his complete failure to hold back the Turks in the east led to growing dissatisfaction with his rule. In 1094, there was a conspiracy against him. It was led by none other than Romanus Diogenes's surviving son, Nicephorus Diogenes. He was the only person who could claim imperial descent, having been born in the purple, as the Byzantines called it, when his father was emperor. In addition, like his father Romanus Diogenes, he was handsome and dashing and inspired respect, as Anna Komnena described. Quote, he was physically strong and boasted that he rivalled the giants, a broad-chested, blonde man, a head taller than others of his generation, end quote. Supported by many of the nobility, Nicephorus plotted to kill Alexius. In 1094, when on campaign with the emperor in the Balkans, he entered the imperial tent with a sword concealed. The emperor and empress were soundly asleep, lying side by side, but there was also a young girl beside them fanning away mosquitoes from the imperial couple. Nicephorus couldn't bring himself to kill the young girl and withdrew. He failed again on another occasion, this time on a hunting party with the emperor when he was spotted concealing a sword as he went to bathe. By then it was too late. Nicephorus was arrested and under torture he confessed to the plot. Alexius was nothing if not decisive. He immediately implemented a Stalin-like purge of the army and government. In traditional Byzantine fashion, Nicephorus Diogenes was blinded, just like his father Romanus, but apparently he survived for several years. Others involved in the coup were also blinded. Many members of the old aristocracy were exiled to monasteries or removed from their positions. Even Alexius's own family weren't spared. His brother Adrian, who had commanded the Western armies and tacitly supported Nicephorus Diogenes's plot, was stripped of his rank and exiled to a monastery. But Alexius knew that with the Turks just across the Bosphorus and the Emir Chaka still building up his fleet in the Aegean, Byzantium's survival could be numbered in years, if not months. He had to find help from somewhere, and the only place that he could look to was the West. But a call for help to the West was made difficult by the long history of tension between the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople. The roots of this go back to the earliest days of Christianity, when Peter was regarded by Christians as the first bishop of Rome, with primacy over all other Christian churches based on Jesus' description of Peter as, quote, the rock of my church, end quote. However, Rome's primacy was contested when the Emperor Constantine moved the Roman capital to Constantinople in 330 AD, and especially when the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century 
instituted something called caesaropapism, which meant that the emperor in Constantinople had the authority to appoint all bishops. And this was at a time when Rome had been reconquered by the Byzantines. With Byzantine loss of control of Rome in later centuries, autonomous bishops of Rome re-established their primacy over the churches in Western Europe and started to call themselves popes. There followed centuries of dispute between Rome and Constantinople, ultimately resulting in the Schism of 1054, which was a formal division between the Eastern and Western churches. The division was purportedly a dispute over doctrine, but in reality it was a power struggle for leadership of the Christian faith. However, the Schism became less acrimonious when both Rome and Constantinople found a common enemy in the Norman adventurers in southern Italy, who threatened both papal and Byzantine power. Indeed, in 1074, Michael VII Ducas's government had proposed an alliance to Pope Gregory VII against the Normans. This marked the first cooperation between the Eastern and Western churches since the schism. Sympathy for Byzantium was also growing due to the increasingly difficult passage experienced by pilgrims to Jerusalem. The Turkish control of Anatolia made travel difficult and the fall of Jerusalem to the Seljuks in 1074 was seen as an unwelcome sign of their growing power. One particular pilgrim became an influential supporter of Byzantium in Western Europe. This was Count Robert of Flanders, who travelled to Jerusalem on pilgrimage in 1089 and witnessed at first hand the collapse of Byzantine rule in Anatolia. Indeed, Alexius cultivated him as an ally, asking him for military assistance. In response, Count Robert sent 500 knights to Alexius, who were vital in helping the Byzantines recover Nicomedia from the Turks in 1091. Robert also helped spread the word of Byzantine collapse throughout Western Europe. Another device used by Alexius very cleverly to solicit support for Byzantium in the West was to exploit the growing obsession in the West with holy relics. Byzantium was fortunate enough to have more than its fair share of these relics. The most important of them was the Holy Cross, which was said to have been brought to Constantinople in the 4th century by the Emperor Constantine. It seems that Alexius started to distribute pieces of this purported relic, together with other items like the clothing Christ wore, the baskets from the feeding of the 5,000, and any number of bones and relics belonging to the apostles, to the rich and powerful in the West, including powerful monarchs like Henry IV of Germany, who was, of course, an opponent of the Sicilian Normans, and above all to the Pope, who in his turn bestowed them on churches and monasteries as a sign of his own power. In this way, Alexius very cleverly curried favour with the West. But initially, in spite of this, his appeals to Pope Gregory VII for military assistance met with little success. This was partly because Gregory VII was overwhelmed with problems in the Western Church itself. However, by the early 1090s, his successor, 
Pope Urban II had stabilised the church and was more willing to look at new causes that could extend papal power. Any chance to gain greater authority over Constantinople was particularly interesting to him. Even so, at first nothing came of Alexius's appeals, but by 1095 Alexius was truly desperate. He sent envoys to Pope Urban II, literally begging for help. A delegation arrived in Piacenza in Italy in March 1095, when Urban was presiding over a church council. They delivered an impassioned plea. Quote, an embassy of the Emperor of Constantinople came to the Synod and implored his Lordship the Pope and all the faithful of Christ to bring assistance against the heathen for the defence of the Holy Church, which had now been nearly annihilated in that region by the infidels who had conquered as far as the walls of Constantinople. End quote. This time... Not only was Urban genuinely shocked and worried by the triumph of the Turks over the Eastern Christians, as he called the Byzantines, but he also saw an unmissable opportunity to extend papal authority over Constantinople. His response to Alexius would shake the world. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. In the next episode, we'll hear about how the First Crusade began. <laughs>